This is The Guardian. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Science Weekly is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash scienceweekly today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scienceweekly. The internet is a challenging place for young people to navigate. There's games, friendship, shopping, places to learn and be creative. But it's also a total minefield. There's bullying, addiction, misinformation and dangerous ideologies that can cause real-life harm. As the UK's online safety bill is being finalised... A group of Conservative peers have said that it needs tougher rules to target misogyny, something that increasing numbers of children are exposed to online through pornography and videos from influencers like Andrew Tate. Demasculinization of men is a genuine plague we are suffering with in the West. Bang out the machete, boom in her face, and then grip her up by the neck. So today on Science Weekly, we're taking a dive into this difficult topic. We're asking what makes young people vulnerable to this kind of content and how does it affect their brains and behaviour? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay and this is Science Weekly. Sally Wheel, you're The Guardian's education correspondent and recently you wrote about the report by the Children's Commissioner for England looking at the rise in children watching pornography online. So for anyone who didn't hear about this at the time, perhaps you could give me some of the headline findings of this report. 
It was, as you say, a report by the Children's Commissioner for England, Dame Rachel D'Souza, who used to be a head teacher and has come across these issues, you know, in schools for some years now and has kind of made it a priority. So this report was all about pornography. And I think everyone's known increasing, it's become increasingly clear that very young children even are looking at pornography. One of the findings was that I think one in 10 children under the age of nine had seen porn. About a quarter of children in their sort of final year of primary school, so you're talking 11, a quarter of them had seen porn. Four out of five of the young people who took part in this survey said that they'd seen porn involving violence by the age of 18. And one of the things that shocked me as well was that one in three young people who had done this survey had actively sought out the depictions of sexual violence. And this is coming at a time when there's been concern anyway about the impact of online misogyny on people. So tell me what you've been hearing from parents and schools. How has this become a growing problem? Porn has become an absolutely massive issue. I mean, I've been covering education and thinking about sex education for, I don't know, about eight years now. And um, it has got bigger and bigger. The porn industry has become massive and it's very hard, I think, for kids to actually avoid it online. I've been looking particularly at sort of Andrew Tate and the kind of appeal of somebody like him, a social influencer with absolutely massive following kids watching porn and then finding themselves being interested in somebody like Andrew Tate. It's a sort of fairly kind of worrying combination. So for anyone who hasn't heard of Andrew Tate, he's a social media influencer and self-described misogynist and his videos portray a kind of hyper-toxic masculinity. You've got the cars, the cigars, the guns, this seemingly luxurious lifestyle. And Tate himself is kind of charismatic. He's seemingly very successful. He's rich. He's muscly. And his videos have been watched billions of times. But a big part of his personality is his extreme views about violence and about women. So what impact have you heard this having in schools and at home? We're only starting to pick up on, on this a bit last year. And it's kind of just um, Tate-style comments and little sayings like, you know, make me a sandwich, little phrases, you know, used to just sort of humiliate women and send them back to the kitchen and so on. And then I think sort of it's become a much bigger deal. I mean, I was talking to a teacher friend yesterday who said, you know, his school has just started addressing it. And the teachers were all asked, you know, how many of you have had sort of Andrew Tate raised as an issue in the classroom? Over half of them put up their hands. I think there's a feeling that some young people, some young men have challenging behaviour towards female teachers, not obeying instructions from female teachers, misogynistic comments to teachers. And in terms of kind of pupils, slightly more nuanced, but one head teacher said she kind of perceived that there was a growing need among boys to kind of control girls. They'd seen one incident where... um, you know, a boy kind of pinned a girl against a wall with her kind of shoulder around her neck and shoulder. And then another kind of incident where a boy wanted to confiscate his girlfriend's phone so that she was cut off and she couldn't make calls. And it's this kind of weird, sort of worrying, controlling aspect, which 
I think teachers are kind of linking to the sort of content that children are seeing online. Why is this kind of content having such a big impact on the kids who are watching it? For that, you probably need to understand what's happening in the brain at this age. This is what we would call a developmentally time-critical sensitive period. There are changes happening from around the age of nine going up into the teens that are quite sort of unique. That's Dr Dickon Bevington, an NHS consultant, child and adolescent psychiatrist and medical director for the Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families, a charity that provides support and training for child mental health services. Broadly, there's a sort of network across our brain that gets described as the social information processing network. And it kind of has three main components that all mature at different speeds. The first of those components, the threat, arousal, response, survival part of the brain, that's pretty much up and running in a newborn infant. Then through primary school years, around the age of 9, 10, 11, you have another set of capacities. And these are the parts of the brain that not only do sort of things like language, they also seem to be where the child starts to, if you like, create a set of almost like scripts about how people should or ought to kind of behave in certain contexts. Most parents would recognise that something quite dramatic begins to shift and their child becomes significantly more socially aware that there are ways of doing things that are okay and there are ways that are doing things that are distinctly uncool. At that point, what they don't have is, if you like, the final bit of the triad, the braking system, this prefrontal cortex that really only reaches adult shape by about the age of 24, 25. And it's these fundamental patterns that are being laid down in our brains. That's the context. And so I asked Dickon what it means for children exposed to pornography and misogynistic content. There are two things going on at the same time that I would say need to be thought about. One is, as we've said, this sponge-like quality for young people around trying to learn the rules. And if the rules are kind of being demonstrated by an Andrew Tate-like character or one of his clones, that is going to be absorbed. The second issue with watching online pornography at this age is that alongside many other emotions, it's arousing. Because of this arousal, there are parallels between the way the brain responds to that to the way it responds to any other pleasurable experiences. The first time a child is introduced to chocolate, it creates a nice warm rush bit of dopamine to be rather crude about the whole thing. And uh, if you like, that starts to lay down a pathway in a child's brain that sugary substances, generally speaking, in a predictable way, induce a certain feeling that is one that I'll go for again. And there are elements of the excitement, the arousal, and as obviously as they become more aware of what it is they're watching, the sexual excitement that is very similar to what happens with other substances, alcohol, cannabis, and all the other 
drugs that I'm not saying these are exactly the same, but there's certainly one or two studies that are hinting that there are some parallels. In essence, kids may be learning that pornography, and in many cases violent pornography, is going to give them a hit of dopamine. But this is a particular concern for vulnerable children. There are, I'm sure, plenty of young people who have seen plenty of things, but because other things in their life, other relationships, levels of support, internal kind of robustness for whatever reason is sufficient that they would say, well, I've seen this stuff and it was kind of gave me a bit of a shock, but I'm, I, you know, it's all right. It's the problem is that children that have perhaps experienced already some kind of trauma or loss, some sense that they're untended, those children develop and have a greater, what we call a greater valency for sort of falling into this DIY approach to managing pleasure and dealing with experiences of loss or trauma, so that drugs, alcohol, porn, all become elements where, if you like, they treat some other loss or lack by filling it with something that they just know is available and is predictable. The thing is, what Dickon is describing is a general picture of what's going on, because actually there's been very few studies on the specific impact of pornography. So, Dickon, from your point of view generally, what can and should we be doing to prevent the negative impacts of children being exposed to this kind of material? I suppose it sort of boils down to cultural changes about how parents engage with and talk with children and young people and legislative changes in terms of how we as a society balance our wish for freedoms against the harms that those freedoms can, I think, undoubtedly cause. Sally, phones aren't going anywhere. Most parents would, wouldn't dare take their children's phones off them. It's where they live their lives a lot of the time online. And yet pornography, misogyny, it seems like it is everywhere online too. The online safety bill is being finalised and hopefully that might put some more onus on social media companies to take responsibility for some of these issues. But where do you see this all going Yes, the online safety bill, I think, will clearly go some way to addressing it. But I, I don't think anything, anybody believes it's going to be the whole solution, do they? Yes, it's about tech firms, you know, taking responsibility, you know, to protect young people from harmful material and to kind of enforce age limits, which I think, you know, we all know are largely ignored. But yeah, I think it's got to be a much bigger effort by the government, by schools to teach about online safety. You know, Rachel D'Souza in that report on porn was saying we have got to act. I mean, she was basically saying in 20 years time, we are going to be horrified at what we were letting very young children see um, and um, absorb, you know, online. 
Well, Sally, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Dickon Bevington and to Sally Wheel. If you want to read Sally's coverage of these issues, just head to the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. That's it for today. The producers were me, Madeline Finlay and Helen Brown. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.